Oh, there it is. God invented sex. Now, and I said, I wonder what somebody's going to do for the story this week. <laughs> you know, that was challenging. So I, I congratulate Tim and Val for uh, finding a way to match the sermon title. God invented sex. None of the kids in my street corner gang would have ever thought that one up. Not that we weren't interested in sex, but it was something you talked about behind the barn. It was something that was in the dark. Nasty. None of us were Christians that I know of, but if you would have asked us, I think would have plainly stated that God didn't have anything to do with that project. On the other hand, we were absolutely fascinated with it. And that fascination did not dim as we approached adolescence. But, was quite sure my parents weren't involved in that sort of thing. They had kind of an anti-nastiness mentality. But there were four kids in the family, so I thought they must have at least got involved four times. By way of contrast, the Bible puts it right up front. Today's sermon, in many ways, I see as a transition between the series we just finished, Questions Young People Ask. I have to admit, Michael, that it uh, seems to me that, you know, this topic is probably one that they do ask. And uh, last week, uh, Brian's sermon, How Do We Know What Is Truth? Truth is the biblical word. Thy word is truth. Now we have a new series, Finding Love. And at the, at the very forefront, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God puts it right before our face. The Bible doesn't beat around the bush. In fact, one biblical book, one out of 66, is entirely devoted to sex. Song of Solomon. I wrote a commentary on that. Greatly, my wife typed it out, it greatly enriched our marriage. God doesn't beat around the bush on this particular topic. I was actually going to read some statements to the Song of Solomon because they're pretty graphic, but I decided that uh, there's only so many things you can do in one sermon. But I will note 
that the medieval priesthood, who were all celibates, their favorite and the most commented commentary of all the biblical books in the Middle Ages by celibate priests was the Song of Solomon. But they couldn't quite bring themselves to face what it was really teaching, so they made it the love of God for the church. Genesis, the first chapter. You've got your Bibles? Let's just go ahead and open it. Genesis 1, and we'll start with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created male and female. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Step one. And the Bible approach to sexuality is to discuss the participants. And in this case, there are several things that we should note. Basic and foundational is the fact that God created male and female. That's biblical fact. In fact, I'm going to tell you something else. It's scientific fact. It's biological fact. God created male and female. God created sexuality. And contrary to the era in which we live, sexuality is not a choice. I'll say that again. From the biblical perspective, from the biological perspective, sexuality is not a choice. That's not a popular idea today. Mainline culture gives us the idea that when you reach the age of 12 or 14, you need to decide what sex you are. You need to decide whether you're a male or a female, whether you're both, whether you're a non-binary. And perhaps you need to experiment with all of the above to discover who you are. The Bible right up front has a blaring no. That's decided at birth. God in Genesis 1 created two types, male and female. Not a choice, but a biological and biblical fact. It stands at the foundation of the Bible's teaching on the topic, period. The Bible does not leave it open for discussion. 
That's the primary fact. The second fact that comes out of Genesis 1, the passage we just read, is that Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, one function, one function of biblical sex is procreation, having children. And in case you're not a biological genius, I would suggest that for human beings, it takes a male and a female to have an offspring. Genesis 1, stage 1. Genesis 2, stage 2. Move over to Genesis 2. If Genesis 1 tells us the personalities involved, it discusses and defines sexuality. Genesis 2 provides the framework in which sex takes place. Now, by the way, I've been preaching for 59 years. And this is the first time I've ever preached a sermon on sex. It's not that I lack interest. Please understand that. I, found, I find very few topics to be more interesting. And if you think that's true for a 14-year-old, it doesn't change when you're 80. Anyway, so this is my virgin voyage. Genesis 2, verse uh, 24. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. I like that word. It's, you know, everybody sees something when you see naked, right? They were naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, before we go anywhere looking at that verse, let's go to the New Testament, which uses that verse in two separate places. It'll help us understand. What the, what the biblical writers understood in Genesis. Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. And I think we'll go to uh, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So we're talking about marriage. He answered, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus reiterates the teachings of Genesis. Jesus is talking about, when he says, the one flesh. He's not talking about a casual relationship in the back seat or wherever. He's talking about marriage. A marriage relationship, the one flesh union, is not a casual affair. It is made for commitment and permanence. The Bible knows of no lawful sexual relationship outside of marriage. Marriage between a male and a female. The two shall be one, not the twelve shall be one, or the three shall be one. The biblical ideal is not polygamy, multiple spouses, the biblical ideal is lasting monogamy. One man and one wife, one woman in a lasting relationship. Experimentation and uncommitted sexual relationships are always less than God's ideal. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, now those of you using the Pew Bible, that's page 1146. 1 Corinthians 6, let's go there. Paul also picks up this verse in a very, in, that is uh, Genesis 2-4, in a very interesting connection. 1 Corinthians 6, and let's start with uh, verse... Uh, 15, 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man commits sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are not your own? Well, this is another reflection upon Genesis 2.4. At the very least, one flesh is sexual intercourse. At the very least. But it's definitely more than that, according to this passage. Sex with a prostitute is one person using, using, the body of another, which makes the prostitute into a thing rather than a person. It's degrading. 
verse 16 symbolizes the difference with two separate Greek words. Verse 16, do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Watch that word body. The Greek word is soma. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. God's ideal is not that we become one body. in which one person can use the other. God's ideal is that we become one flesh. Sex, marital sex, is much more than a physical act. That's reflected in verse 17. Let me go back here. Do you not know that he, verse 16, he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? The physical act. For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. We're going to come back to that. But he is united to the Lord becomes one spirit. One spirit. There's a spiritual side to sexuality. And the illustration is an illustration reflecting the relationship of Christ with his church. To be one flesh is not merely physical unity. It's a spiritual unity that reflects the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, gentleness, kindness, God doesn't want us merely to have a physical act. He wants us to become spiritually, caringfully one. There's a higher union than mere sex in the physical sense. The spiritual union Christ is the perfect model of the kind of flesh, one flesh, that biblical marriage has at its core. In the Bible, the sexual act is never an end in itself. That can be accomplished with a prostitute. But it's a means to an end of bringing people into a closer relationship. That brings us back to Genesis, the second chapter. Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And they become one flesh. Several ideas here. The first one is leave. Now you're supposed to honor your mother and your father, right? You're supposed to honor your parents. That's one of the, that's one of the Ten Commandments. But there's a relationship more intimate than your relationship to your parents. And that's relationship with your spouse. And couples that do not get that straight suffer. You 
believe. Believe. Your parents. And it says down here the next key word, and he cleaves to his wife. And she cleaves to him. Now that's an interesting word. The New King James has it as joins. The NIV has it as unites, but it's much more than that. It's cleaving. It's holding on tight. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus uses when he quotes this passage is the same word that we get from glue. You're not going to leave your parents, but it's like super glue in God's ideal. You cleave. To one another and those are covenant words when we come to Jesus we leave what the world behind us we cleave unto him those are covenant words the words about the marriage of Christ to his church it's no accident that apostasy in the scripture is called adultery getting involved with other gods, whether they be secular or religious things. It's adultery, prostitution. Okay. Now, last key word here is one flesh. We've already talked about that. But one flesh infers a spiritual unity, not merely a body unity. It's two persons, not two things. Two persons with different sexual equipment. That, that uh, thought brings us to Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They trusted each other. They had confidence in each other. They know that the other one cared about them. Not as a body, but as a person created in the image of God. Marriage is ideally a place where two people can enjoy life to the fullest. Notice I said ideally. It is the boundless love of God that undergirds a biblical marriage relationship. The biblical vision of marriage not only reflects not only the love of God, but the servanthood of Christ. Each partner seeking to out do the other in caring. Oh man, that's pretty good, huh? Each partner seeking to outdo the other in pleasing the other, in caring for the other. It is the best of all possible worlds. In, in flesh is a true unity of two very different individuals whose different makeups complement one another. Marriage in Genesis 2 is a bit of heaven 
on earth. That is God's ideal. And please, never forget that the climax of God's creation took place on the sixth day. Near the end of that day, he created Adam and Eve, male and female. And he created them sexual. He not only created sex organs, but he created hormones. Wow. I mean, God could have said, well, the way to have baby is to pound 10 pounds of sand into your wife's ear. But God created something special. And he created sensual organs and hormones to make it special. And he created them on Friday afternoon. Adam and Eve. Spent their honeymoon Friday night. Becoming one flesh. Adam and Eve celebrated their first Sabbath and their sexuality at the very same time. And I often wonder if that's not where that little song came from. Sabbath is a happy day. I love every Sabbath! There are certain sects of conservative Jews basing their understanding on these verses and the intersection of sexuality with Sabbath as the fact that sex is obligatory on the Sabbath day. Genesis 2 closes with the statement that they were naked and not ashamed. And then comes Genesis 3. Which teaches very plainly that they were naked and extremely ashamed. sexual picture of Genesis 2 comes crashing to the floor in Genesis 3. God's ideal hasn't changed, but human nature has. Let's start with verse 6. So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then their eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew something had gone wrong. Naked sinners, and they tried to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves. You've got to be pretty desperate to 
try to cover up your nakedness with fig leaves. I got a fig tree in my backyard, but I'm not that desperate. Something was wrong. Genesis 2.25. They were naked and they were not ashamed, and now they're naked and they're very ashamed. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of the of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself what, what a shattering transition in just a few short verses verse 11 he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And of course the man doesn't confess. He blames it on his wife. First family argument. Where once they had trust, now they have accusations. Where once they had peace, now they have They were naked. They're ashamed. It had once been a in one flesh experience. Now it takes on different tonalities. The world of trust is shattered in several ways. Marriage and sex and one fleshness becomes not what I can give to you, but what you can give to me what I can get from you. You need to fulfill my needs. Sin is all about me. The picture of Adam and Eve is no longer one of one flesh. Too often Sexuality borders on one body. Beyond that, fulfilling others' needs not only disappears, but a multitude of perversions, sexual perversions, come in think of adultery, the lack of trust, you think of pedophilia, child abuse, sex with children, even babies, things to fulfill sick, naked aggression. Sex becomes problematic even within the marriage relationship when it becomes one body rather than one spirit and one flesh. Bestiality. Sex with animals. Didn't take them long for that one. It's right back in the, the Pentateuch, the book, books of Moses. Same-sex unions and so on. 
all of them are less than God's ideal. God made a male and female to be one flesh. The entrance of sin in Genesis 3 shattered the one flesh ideal of marriage. And in all two cases, moved marriage and sexuality not from, from heaven on earth to somewhat of a hell on earth. Not necessarily. It depends on how we respond and how clearly we understand that the whole basis of sinful nakedness is self-centeredness. Sexuality, perverse sexuality, it's not the problem, it's a symptom. A symptom of the fact that sinful people see themselves as the most important, even more so than their spouse. None of us, I hate to tell you even me, even me at 80, none of us, I hate to admit, is free from the difficulties of Genesis 3. In the biblical world, in the ancient Near East, you've read about Baal. You know what the essence of Baal worship was? Sex. Sacred prostitutes, male and female. You read about the Asherah? And the pillars, female and male parts. The worship of Baal was centered around creation, and that had to do with sex, creating. In the New Testament, well, and let's go to the Greek world. In the Greek world, a man had three types of companions. Number one, was his wife. He had a wife for respectability. She remained closed up behind the scenes. A wife was for respectability and children, but if you wanted to have fun, <laughs> every gentleman had his prostitute, his friend, female friend. But that's not enough. If you need more stimulation, openly, a part of the culture. Every gentleman had his little boy for sexuality. That's the pre-Christian world. The greatest social revolution, the greatest Christian contribution to culture is the revolution on sexuality. God stood against all of these things in both testaments. Christianity drove Christians. Back to Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It drove him back to Matthew 19, verse 5, and uh, Jesus' use of the term. The two, male and female, shall be one. 
But, historically speaking, we no longer live in the Christian era. This is important to understand this age, 2021, and the culture in which we live. We're now long longer living in a Christian culture. We're living in a post-Christian culture. And all of the things that were involved in ancient Greece and Rome, that were involved in Baal worship, not all of them, but nearly all of them are back with us. And how did we get from Christian understandings in the larger culture to where we are today. Well, not by the Bible, but rather by philosophy. My training, believe it or not, is not a theologian or a church historian, but philosophy. Ken took a class from me. Back in the 19th century, a movement called pragmatism came up, John Dewey and others. And they said, you know, you really can't tell what's out there. You can't, truth, truth is what works. And you can't tell what works if you can't experiment with it. So revelation from another world, such as in the Bible and other things like that, they were washed out, thrown out. You can only validate through your subjective experience what works and then in the mid 20th century came existentialism Jean-Paul Sartre and others we invent truth I choose what is true truth is not out there truth is what I invent as an individual and to climax it off, in the last 40, 50 years, we've seen the rise of postmodernism. Postmodernism. There is no truth, objective truth. I don't know if you've watched The Life of Pi. It's a little bit older now, maybe 5, 10 years old. I don't know. The Life of Pi. Fascinating movie. But at the end, the conclusion is, you choose my truth, and I'll choose you choose your truth, and I'll choose my truth. The perfect postmodern perspective. And in this generation, that's been applied to history. There are professional historians of the postmodern school who say the Holocaust did not happen. Pretty hard to convince a Jew on that one. Six million of them were killed in the Holocaust. But from a postmodern perspective, you can choose what historical facts you want to believe. Now it's come to the same in scientific and medical facts and even mathematics. You choose your truth, I'll choose my truth. And guess what? This is the foundation for the postmodern view of sexuality. You weren't born male or female. 
you got to experiment. And when you get to the age of 12 or 13 or 14, you're going to have to make a decision. Are you a male or are you a female? Are you a both? Are you a non-binary or are you something else? My generation, we just checked in our undies. We were made that way. There's truth out there. And when you give up that idea in metaphysics and epistemology, philosophic categories of reality and truth, it comes in and it dominates. The most intimate aspects of life. The biblical perspective is not choice. The biblical perspective is that things really did happen. Things really are out there. There are scientific facts. But there are male and female. Postmodernism has shaped our culture. It has shaped the media, even the cartoons. For little children and a denial that the basic sexual issues have reality. We're living in an age which might best be described as lost. And the devil is alive and well only two institutions that we have today came out of Eden. One is the Sabbath. One is sexuality. God made them so they were celebrated together. Satan is doing everything he can to undermine what God has put together. The good news of our sexual lostness is that we're not beyond redemption. Sexuality is in need of grace. My sexuality is in need of grace and God's redemptive work. God is more than willing to guide us in our search for finding true love. That's what this series is all about, finding true love. That kind of love, one flesh love, reflected in Genesis 2, treated by Christ in Matthew 19. He not only has forgiving grace, but also transforming and empowering grace that we might ever grow closer to him and as Tim and Val illustrated as we grow closer to him we can grow closer together in a one flesh journey as we seek to find the true meaning of love I would add security. May God 
guide us out of the philosophies of this world and into the teachings of his word. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for two great gifts, the Sabbaths, and for those of us who are married, sexuality. What a blessing. Help us, Lord, all of us, to understand the difference between one flesh, which is related to one spirit, as opposed to sex as one body. Thank you, Lord, that you made us male and female, and that you made us in your image so that we can love and care and find meaning. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen. Now.